Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. We begin this morning with some earnings. Twitter, first quarter revenue coming in at $664.9 million. The estimate at 605.9. Monthly users also up by about 3%. In the pre-market, the story looks like this. Twitter up by over 5.5%. percent want to cross over to London quickly and catch up with Alex Webb, Bloomberg Gadfly columnist, to get a feel for what's in, inside the earnings report coming from Twitter. Alex, what are you looking at? It's, I mean, they're very impressive numbers, clearly. They've beaten on almost every measure apart from one, which is more or less in line, and that is active users. The thing that the story that tells me is that Twitter, unlike Facebook, which really banks on growing user numbers, um, they are managing to monetize the users they have. It's the story that Snapchat tried to tell when they went public, but they didn't seem to manage to get it to work, and Twitter really is. Alex, what's fascinating to me is the word that is so in right now is scale. Compare the scale of Twitter and their opportunities of scale versus all their other compare and contrasts. They don't have any scale compared to these others, do they? Well, no, but equally, if you compare it to the classic media company, they have a lot of scale. It's, you know, it's clearly we're in a slightly different universe now. Um, But yes, compared to Facebook with, you know, upwards of two billion um, users, Twitter is nowhere near that. I, I guess if you're going to Twitter, you know you're getting a certain particular audience, namely one that is engaged live, whereas Facebook, traditionally, you know, you go back and revisit Facebook at different points of the day. Yeah, The live audience element is something that's massive now for advertisers, big events, and being able to push ads in those directions. Alex, unlike Facebook, Twitter's having a fantastic year. The stock's up by 27% before today's gains are even factored in. Um, we're positive in the pre-market as well. A similar model in the sense that Facebook gets a lot of revenue from advertising and as does Twitter. So why has Twitter not sort of got caught up in the Facebook storm? Well, let's put some context here. All truth is relative, right? Twitter's not is coming off the back of some not very good years. So um, it's really outperforming what it did before. Um, we're always, with any of these stocks, I think, waiting for the risk of some big event hitting in the sen- in, you know, in, in, the, in the light of a Cambridge Analytica um, phenomenon, which, which sheds uh, or casts the company in a bad light and, and can really create problems for them. So far, there's no evidence of that at Twitter because yeah. it is kind of an open fire hose. People know that they're disseminating information to the pu- public. That has also been Twitter's problem. They don't have the same sort of metadata on their users, who you are, what your interests are, to the same extent that Facebook does. Um, that has been a problem in the past. It makes it harder to target advertising. But in this context, it's sort of a boon. Alex Webb, great to catch up with you. Um, Decent Twitter earnings. Bloomberg Gadfly columnist joining us from London. Um, The usual disclaimer here, Bloomberg LP, of course, the, uh, the parent company of Bloomberg Radio, producing a global breaking news network for Twitter, Tom Keane. That, that breaking news network being TikTok, of course. With us, Ellen Zentner uh, with Morgan Stanley, and she joins us now on an exceptionally important paper. I saw the paper from Morgan Stanley on our fiscal position, and I just said, get her on as soon as possible. You coalesced all your teams in on our debt. Is our debt now different than our debt of 20 and 30 Reagan years ago? 
Well, I think that the 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 certainly the interest on the debt is different. Got to say that it's a lot better, right? Right, it's a lot better, and so perhaps that means that we can carry uh, such debt burdens for longer. Um, but either way, you do pay the piper. Um, so here are the two obvious things for economists. The first obvious thing is that we've deployed all of our fiscal muscle late in the uh, expansion when times are good. So it's just very, as Janet Yellen put it, ill-timed. Uh, and so that makes us skeptical of when we go into the next downturn, can we get enough fiscal support? It will be all on monetary policy uh, with rates that may not be very high. You know, depending on the timing of the next downturn. So that's that's more of the the obvious, you know, medium term issue. The longer term issue is that, uh, you know, we've we've just uh, raised uh, the debt, but we didn't structurally change uh, the uh, tax burdens uh, or the the incentives for doing business in, in the U.S. Uh, and so what we've done is we've uh, now uh basically guaranteed hampered longer-term potential growth in the economy. Uh, and that's one reason why you saw economists revise upward near-term forecasts. Yeah. But we did not revise, for the most part, longer-run forecasts of the economy's potential. Now, we could all be wrong, right? We've, uh, we don't have uh, a perfect vision when these things go into place and we make our best guesses. And who's to say that 10 years down the line, we don't look back and say, oh, we did actually structurally raise investment as a share of GDP. We did structurally raise productivity. That absolutely could be the case, but it doesn't look like that through my lens right now. Adam, what's really interesting here is what you see in the economy, I think other people are starting to see in the results from, from corporate earnings as well. Caterpillar was fascinating yesterday. It, it blew out estimates. It beat on the top and the bottom line, boosted their guidance as well. And then the management came out and said this could be the high watermark for the year. And I think there's been a sense amongst many equity investors over the last couple of weeks that Q1 might be as good as it gets. Um, do you see the same parallels with, with corporate earnings and the US economy as well, that maybe what we're seeing and what we're about to see in the immediate future might be as good as it gets. Well, so I think that's really interesting because, of course, um, one reason why it's so important for us to collaborate with our strategists across the firm is because markets peak earlier than the economy. So investors are forward-looking. So they're seeing that that earnings are getting this this boost, um, and it may not be the the uh, the the highest quality. Uh, boost because it's coming f primarily from a drop in tax rates. Uh, we're not going to drop tax rates again. We don't do this every year or every quarter. So the as good as it gets scenario certainly seems reasonable for equity markets. Uh, and But for the economy, we have not yet seen uh, the bulk of the push or the, the positive fiscal impulse yet. Um, and that's because economies in our uh, economies, companies in our survey um, suggested that it's going to take them some time um, to fully um, pull on board um, exactly how the tax changes affect their business. And some, yes, may be hampered by uncertainty over possible possibility of tariffs and and uh, supply disruptions. Um, so far, CapEx plans are at all-time highs. Uh, our other business conditions surveys remain very, very positive. Uh, and so the um, uh, stronger investment is coming from the tax policy. It's not yeah. showing up in first quarter GDP yet for a variety of reasons. Um, but, I, but I think it's too early. I think the, the 
um, tendency to then count it out and say we got no positive fiscal impulse at all. I think that's the wrong call to make. It's too early for that. But markets certainly can peak well before the economy. But we know for certain folks that on Wednesday, 19,000 Bloomberg employees begin to slow down and anticipate the real yield, 1 p.m. on Fridays. It's a two-day anticipation to get show? John, John Farrow's oh. show, The Real Yield. What show is that? Seen on Bloomberg Television worldwide. Ellen Zentner with us of Morgan Stanley. Ellen, get, get John out in preparation here. Wither the real yield, given all the dynamics. Do we get anywhere near normal? Do we get an excess real yield? Or do we have an inflation-adjusted yield that barely moves? Which is it? Well, I, I think at this point, um, you know, with so many moving parts and pieces, uh, the the additional supply um, from funding the deficit, the Fed's balance sheet rolling off and Treasury having to uh, replace that uh, and just raising rates. You know, I think that the Fed is going to find that it can't go far into positive real rate territory. And that's one reason why we think that they pause after that third hike this year that we think comes in September. Now, what will help them, of course, is higher inflation. And inflation is rising. Yeah. It's rising very gradually. We're going to print right. 2% on core PCE next next week on Monday. I think that, that the optics of that, um, the Fed will have to continue its, its uh, diligence that we've seen from several policymakers are trying right. to get out ahead of this and say, look, inflation at 2%, not a big deal. Two, two, yeah. one, two, two. What, not a big deal. What I know, John wants to jump in here because he's trying to get ready for his show. The real yield seen at one p.m. on Bloomberg Television. <laughs> I think you're being very nice Friday. to me this morning. Well, it's only once a week. Um, but, 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 critically, what duration do you use to calculate the best real yield? Is it two year, five year, ten year, fifty year? Which is it? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm sure that it's different for. Um, Old people is a phrase you're looking for. <laughs> so for a con for a, no, I was trying to think from a strategist viewpoint versus an economist viewpoint. You know, strategists are from Mars, economists are from Venus. Uh, but we we um, uh, tend to just look at uh, positive real federal funds rate. Short term. Uh, yeah. yeah, short term. We focus on short term there because when you're looking for the biggest bang for market impact. And the answer um, is it's flat right now. Yeah, it's flat. Flat, John, means near zero. Thanks, 0 Tom. I appreciate Thank that. You. Tom, Tom gets me ready for Friday, so I don't have a clue what I'm doing. <laughs> and so I think that, that that raises a host of issues, right? It's one reason why the Fed is facing a flatter and flatter yield curve. And as we um, get into that third hike in September uh, with a very flat yield curve, uh, you know, we think that it's going to be more difficult for them to go further. Yeah. Um, what does help, though, steepen that yield curve is inflation. Um, so the Fed themselves can control that by, of course, taking that pause after the September meeting. You could uh, steepen out what's become a very flat yield curve then because you're guaranteeing to markets that you're not going to push too hard against inflation just because it's risen a bit above Goal. So I think the the messaging here is going to be critical as we get, uh, say, halfway um, into the year. But it really probably starts next week with that first 2% print. You know, the Fed really does not want market participants to make that big of a deal of it. Uh, yeah. Governor Brainerd made a made a uh, stressed in her uh, headwinds to tailwinds speech. Remember that one? Uh, the the in that speech, she stressed that it wasn't about getting to the two percent goal. It was about strengthening underlying trend inflation. To do that, you have to be at or above the two percent goal for a time. So you Ellen, don't 
battle against it the second we get there. Just finally, um, help us draw a distinction between what we have seen um, in terms of inflation expectations, getting a boost over the last month, whether it's primarily been driven by commodity prices or whether there are serious expectations, real expectations that that wage growth is just around the corner and it's coming. Yeah, so I think um, much of the bounce um, has been oil and trade, right? It built into those inflation expectations. Um, We also saw them strengthen, though, after uh, fiscal policy because there was an expectation that faster growth in the economy would also bring higher inflation. Mm -hmm. But I'm glad you mentioned wage growth um, because let's think about wage growth. So um, here's an equation alert, Tom, equation alert. Um, The rule of thumb for nominal wage growth If you want to think about what level does it get inflationary or not, think about productivity plus inflation. And this is how the Fed looks at it. So productivity... So one and something. Right. So productivity, one and change last year, say 2% on inflation. So around a 3% nominal wage growth right now would be a level that if you go beyond it, you would see inflationary wage pressures. Those are the kind of pressures that could spill over. We're at 2.5% wage growth. So that is something that they are looking very, that policymakers are looking very closely at because if you have above goal inflation and you've got inflationary wage pressures, that's a much different story than wage growth that's still sluggish from that rule of thumb yeah. sense and 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 uh, inflation that's a, that's well, above goal. So I think that helps them tolerate it. Ellen Zander, thank you so much. Congratulations on a superb fiscal economics report. Remember that Boeing, the biggest weighting on the Dow, makes up over 9% of the Dow in terms of member weighting. So Boeing results... I have results, no idea, really? Yeah, Boeing results really mattering um, for the Dow in a big, big way. Um, so the Boeing numbers coming in, first quarter core, EPS at 364, the estimate 258, boost in the forecast as well. So Boeing up in a pre-market in some decent size, up by 2.4%, and giving a lift to the Dow as well, Tom. Can we rip up the script Do what you want. Jack Ablin with us from Chicago, which means we can always rip up the script. Jack, when does does Dow, Standard & Poor's, whatever, wake up and stop this cap-weighted, I mean, this price-weighted Dow Jones? I mean, I like the Dow. I quote it because that's the third rail that everybody thinks off of. But come on, it's 2018. Why don't they go to a cap, you know, like an S&P kind of index? <clears throat> yeah, you're right. It, it, it's crazy. I mean, how long has the Dow been around? Since the 1800s 1880s, or something? whatever. I mean, I, <laughs> just, they, they, they couldn't figure it into their abacus back then. I, I, they probably didn't know what market cap was in the 1800s. Let's go to the brilliant one. John Farrell, if Google Alphabet joined the Dow... What would they make up? Like twenty percent of the index? Well, it depends what the price is. Um, it's that's like a the crazy part of something. it. You know, if you do a stock split and you're still on the Dow, um, your weighting goes down, <laughs> whether whether your market cap is the same size it's or not. So Apple, even though Apple has this massive size of eight hundred and twenty-seven billion dollars, its weighting is is about half of what Boeing's is um, in the Dow. I just, gives you a sense of how ridiculous that Mike, index is, but I do feel like I've had this conversation about 10 times. No, Mike McKee and right. I have a rule. We only have this conversation after the second Gibson. And and I'm, I just, come on, Jack, now's the time. Right. That's it. I it. mean, you know, 3M has a has a price of around $200 a share. It's a big component of the Dow. And when yeah. they disappointed the other day, it, we saw it in yeah. the headlines. Are you a bull? 
Um, you know what? I'm conflicted, Tom. I I think near term, um, there are some opportunities to the upside. Um, if we could strip away twi Twitter and strip away some of these headlines, I think the market should be 10 percent uh, higher uh, than it is right now. Longer term, I'm concerned. I think that while you know the the, the stock market didn't like three, they're going to hate four. Uh, and I think fair value in the 10 years, four percent. Talk to me about 3%. I had a really simple question from someone over Twitter yesterday who was a pensioner and just wants to understand what does 3% mean for the equity market, if anything at all. The world's still spinning. A lot of people were freaking out, leading up to it, but the world's still spinning and things are still okay. What does 3% mean to you? 3% means uh, that uh, the bond market investors are looking at the ECB saying that uh, they're going to end their quantitative easing program sometime in the fourth quarter. Uh, and that's really what's been keeping that interest rate low. Longer term, uh, the bond market has been in this tug of war with the stock market over the last 10 years with one arm tied behind its back. And so as a result of that, ec the equity market's been the only child of the asset allocation world and has gotten a lot more capital than it probably deserved. Any reason to believe, though, that risk assets can't continue outperforming, given our experience of 3% in the past where equity markets have been totally fine? Um, 2013, 2014, the more recent experience, of course. Um, and I keep asking, why is it different? this time? I think because potential GDP is much lower than it's been in the past. Potential GDP right now is is uh, about 2%. If you look at a labor force growth of 0.7 and productivity about 1.5. And, and so uh, in the context of potential GDP, um, you know, uh, the, that uh, interest rate is, is higher than it's been historically, I suppose. Jack, your great charm over the decades is you've really always taken a bigger view. The word du jour, you and I have seen endless word du jour as they come in, they go out, they use whatever, is scale. Everybody's scaling. I know what scale means to me. What's scale mean to Jack Ablin? Yeah, I mean, it, it means that... Um, you have to take the infrastructure that you have and try to apply it to as many customers as you've got. Um, and technology has been able to help companies do that. Right. Um, so when you look at the, uh, you know, the Comcast Sky deal, for example, it's all about scale. It's all about taking the content uh, and trying to, you know, foist football or uh, the Olympics on Europeans. Uh, and so... You know, it's taking all of the the content that that con that Comcast has yeah. accumulated and a, and this you know distributing it to Europe. Okay. To me, and and this goes back to our terrific interview. Thank you for the global response yesterday to our uh, interview in London with Mariana Mazzacuto. We got a huge response of her thoughts on how corporate officers are incentivized. We got lesser nominal GDP. You just mentioned we got lesser potential GDP growth. And every corporate officer out there of every deal, Twitter, Boeing, all the companies John's mentioning, are incentivized by total returns, stock options, and all the rest. For the next bull market, is the system broken? Because the officers are trying as crazy as they can to get incentive returns. And yet, does that really benefit a company desperate for this thing's scale? Um, yeah, I think that, you know, what we're really, uh, what you're talking about, at least in, uh, the way I, I see it, is short-termism. Uh, Which is what Mariana said. Yeah. Right. And and the issue here is part of the part of the uh, 
uh, gravitational pull of the the public equity markets is this quarter-to-quarter short-termism. For that reason, we don't see private companies going public as quickly. We see, in fact, the number of shares outstanding in public markets has <clears throat> diminished over time. And for that reason, we at Crescent are actually focused on direct investments in private companies. The direct investments in private companies, how competitive is that right now? Because there is huge, huge piles of cash sitting uh, with private equity ready to be deployed. How, how competitive is that? Sure. So we're not uh, big believers in private equity funds nor private equity fund of funds. We literally go out and place money with individual companies and own individual companies ourselves. And consider it this way, for as expensive as private equity is at, say, eight or nine times EBITDA, it's currently trading at half the valuation of the S&P 500. So what do you do with that? What's the application where I can arbitrage that and make money? Well, it's a getting back to a, uh, our time frame. It's a long-term endeavor. Uh, it 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 forces us to be long-term investors, um, and that segment of the market we're buying individual companies with low leverage, uh, and we want to own them forever. Uh, and so, what we can do is use the cash flow that these companies are kicking off, and rather you, than having to ap apply it to pay down debt. We can uh, use it for dividends for our, our, our holders. Jack Kaplan, it's great to have you with us. Thank you very much for joining us this morning. Crescent Wealth Advisors, Chief Investment Officer and, and Founding Partner. Victor Anthony with us now with Aegis. And I, I want to say, folks, you can go into the Bloomberg terminal, not with all, but with most analysts. You can really look at their buy, hold, sell calls. And Victor Anthony brilliantly was skeptical. And, you know, there was a nudginess where he missed a little bit. And then he has absolutely nailed Twitter from January 16th this year. Again, Victor Anthony joins us with Aegis. Let's go back, Victor, first. Why did you shift from teens mediocrity to the moonshot known as Twitter right now. What was the thing where you climbed on board and said, load the boat? Yeah, so um, it's a good question. I mean, for most of the time I was negative on Twitter, my channel checks were coming back negative. You know, advertisers were telling me that they were shifting budgets off Twitter. Advertisers were telling me they were getting better return on the ad dollar on other platforms, notably Facebook and Google. But that shifted towards the back half of last year. Um, it started getting more positive commentary from advertisers. Um, that became extremely stronger in the fourth quarter, and so much so that I was uh, it compelled me to up my rating from a sell to a buy in uh, um, right. uh, for the fourth quarter. Do they diminish? I mean, is there takeout remorse here? Should they have been taken out in January, or are they ever more a takeout candidate this morning? You know, the numbers are great. I mean, they beat my the, my estimates by about 10% on the top line. They beat the EBITDA by 15%. The guidance was also above quite minimally on revenues on, and on EBITDA, implied revenues. Um, so very, very strong print. Um, they grew users as well, uh, perhaps not as strongly in the U.S. as I was expecting. There was some, um, you know, kind of a one-time issues there. Um, but, you know, 
the business has returned. I think it's a significant inflection point for them. Um, but given that the business is such a solid ground, you know, I'm being, you know, I think it's somewhat counterintuitive, but I do believe that now I think acquirers should actually start taking a look at Twitter. I think it's an exceptional platform. It's open. Um, you know, advertisers are coming back. Um, there's a whole, um, lot of data you could glean from the usage of Twitter that I think a platform like, you know, Google or Alphabet will find extremely valuable. Gleaning this data from Twitter, does that ever run afoul of federal regulators? You know, I think um, given that Twitter is an open platform, you know, I think they're less susceptible to any sort of regulatory issues that may come down the, down the pike, which I do think will come down, um, some, uh, if not this year, definitely next year. Um, I think that will probably have more of a negative impact on Facebook, even though I think Facebook will be able to uh, withstand it. Um, but I think it's a bit less so for an open platform like Twitter. Why? What's being open about it that makes it less susceptible to any kind of hacking or indeed uh, false uh, tweeting or pasting or posting of false material? No, I think, you know, the the quality of tweets, um, you know, whether it be bots, I think it's an issue that Twitter has grappled with for quite some time. But I think, you know, there are have measures in place to actively um, – policing the platform and using artificial intelligence tools to combat that. Um, but what I was saying is that on Twitter, um, when you post on Twitter, most users, uh, most users, uh, probably the super majority of them, make their tweets you know, available to the public. Whereas on Facebook, is more of a closed platform. So when you share that information, you share it with the intent that that information um, is held um, private. The other issue, though, is whether or not, you know, that information could be sold and manipulated like it was um, during the election cycle. Um, I think that was more of an issue for Facebook than it was for Twitter, even though Twitter did have, you know, some issues there as well with uh, uh, particularly Russian bots. How do you value Twitter? You know, I, um, you know, Twitter is returning back to growth. Um, advertising revenue is back into double digits. I think that continues throughout the next several quarters. I think this is the second consecutive quarter of gap profitability. I think that continuation continues, and I think they get added into the S&P uh, if they do that for four consecutive quarters. That said, though, I think a DCF is probably the best way to do it. Um, the company is cash flow positive, unlike Netflix, um, and uh, you discount yeah. those cash flows, you get a really good um, stock price. You know, I'm, my, my valuation of the base case is $40 for the stock. Okay. You know, I, I get all the CFA talk of, of, yeah. about it. But the key word this era is scale. Does Twitter have scale? Listen, I mean, 336 million users, um, you know, clearly it's subscale relative to Facebook, which has over 2 billion users. Um, but that, that number is nothing to sneeze at. And so, um, you know, I think they'll continue to grow that at a marginal pace, 1 or 2 million per quarter. It'll never grow and never be the size as Twitter. Uh, as Facebook, uh, but I think it's uh, you know it's, it has a captive audience, a very engaged audience, and I think over time you know they're finding better ways to monetize that audience, and that's what we're seeing in the numbers today. And the stock is off today. I think it's down as we began speaking, probably down another. Yeah, you drove 5%. it lower, Victor. Yeah, no, no. I, I think you know the tape. It's a tough tape. Number one, number two. Yeah. They get some cautious commentary on the call about the back half in terms of uh, the ad growth in the back half, but I think that's just uh, that's the being conservative. 
What has the effect been of adding the feature of being able to add more uh, comments? In other words, lengthening the 140 characters. Well, according, according to the company, the engagement on Twitter has increased um, meaningfully since the, they made that conversion over. So um, it's more of a tool um, to appease uh, the you know, high-value users of the platform. They keep them more engaged, and you know, people are spending a little bit, slightly a bit more time clearly, given the fact that you're reading a lot more content. So more time spent and more high engagement mm. on the platform. Who would buy Twitter? I mean, I know we covered this earlier in the interview, yeah. but but I, I, I just, they're little. That's what I keep circling back, Pim. Tom, to, you ever buy they're, anything they're or little. click on anything like an ad when you're on Twitter? No. Never Do you know once. anyone that's ever no. clicked on an ad no. or bought anything on Twitter? No. So why would you advertise on Twitter, Anthony? Victor, I beg you, Victor Anthony. Why would um, you do that? I, well, have you guys bought something from Facebook? No. Okay. But they're generating billions and billions of dollars of advertising on, on the platform, Facebook. Yeah, but doesn't eventually right. the advertiser go, wait a minute, they're not clicking? Um, what I'm hearing from advertisers is quite the contrary. Um, on both platforms now. You know, it wasn't the case for Twitter, but now I'm hearing the same thing for Twitter. Um, people are clicking on, the, on those ads. Maybe, you may not be doing it. Um, quite frankly, the only ads I've clicked on was really on Instagram. I find those ads to be a lot more relevant for my own personal taste. Those are your surveillance ads that we went to. So people, people do buy. People do buy from the platform. And advertisers are seeing the return on the spend okay. because people are clicking on the ads. <clears throat> now, Victor, thank you. Congratulations on what you've done since the middle of January on Twitter. Just superb. Aegis. Uh, Victor Anthony of Aegis Capital. Uh, this one... Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.